is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Amsterdam. With me today is Robert van Roy, Assistant Professor of Philosophy of Language at the Institute for Logic, Language, and Computation at the University of Amsterdam, and he is here to talk to us about vagueness. Robert van Roy, welcome. Thank you. So usually when we think about vagueness, we sort of think about not really being specific about what you're saying, making sort of uh, claims that are unclear. This is the sort of thing we associate with like politicians, uh, political rhetoric. But in general, philosophers of language and linguists are after something a bit more specific when they talk about vagueness. So uh, what is it that we're interested in as philosophers looking at vagueness? Yes, philosophers normally characterize vagueness by two properties. First, it gives rise to a particular paradox known as the Sardis paradox, and second, and maybe that's the first thing that comes to mind, that it gives rise to borderline cases. That is, that it's not clear for some particular individuals whether they satisfy a predicate or not satisfy a predicate. So that is about uh, vagueness of predicates. So that gives rise to borderline cases, or better, that there are no particular boundaries between whether you're in something or whether you're not in something. Okay, so a borderline case then is an example of something where it's not really clear whether it either has a property or lacks a property. So what would be an example of like a borderline case? Well, let's think of adjectives in the first, because adjectives are the kind of uh, words where vagueness is most obvious. So let's think of a, an adjective like tall. Right in Holland, you're tall if you're like uh, more than 1.9 meters well, certainly, you're certainly not tall if you're below 160, below 170. But if you are, let's say, 1.80, then you're neither clearly tall nor not clearly not tall or not clearly short. And that will be a case of borderline tallness. But many people are borderline tall because 180 is like the average uh, tallness that men in the Netherlands at least have. But it can also be more significant, for instance, um, when do you count something as a human being? So this is important for abortion. But more straightforwardly, suppose that you have a local ordinance that bans vehicles from public park. So now, of course, then it's important, what does vehicle mean? Well, it's clear that this local um, ordinance forbids cars or autos to be there. It doesn't forbid peanut butter. But what about bicycles, for instance? So this would be another example of a borderline case. Yeah, and already there's a, an incredible amount of variety in these examples. I mean, so in the case of tall, there's sort of a continuum we can imagine. People can be anywhere from this height to this height. And at some point, as somebody's height increases and increases and increases, at some point, maybe we want to say that they're tall. But in these other cases, you know, the example of what counts as a vehicle. Well, do roller skates count as a vehicle? Uh, probably not, I guess. But a bike? Yeah, a bike is sort of like a vehicle. There, maybe it's harder to imagine this 
you know, one scale that you're ascending up and at some point something becomes a vehicle. It's not clear that we could arrange all the different modes of transportation on a continuum from non-vehicle to vehicle. So it's actually pretty extraordinary how pervasive this phenomenon of vagueness is. It seems to reach into all different um, categories we put things in. Yes, it's not only uh, adjectives. Adjectives are um, the most natural thing, but I mean, nouns give rise to vagueness as well. Uh, Adverbs give rise to vagueness. Quantifiers give rise to vagueness. Verbs give rise to vagueness. So when exactly... When exactly do we start singing and when doesn't it count like singing anymore? So basically every type of word that we use in natural language gives rise to vagueness, you might say. Yeah, and then I like the abortion example too as well because that just gets into how this problem can have very serious ethical consequences. So, you know, how many months in do we want to say it's ethical or no longer ethical for somebody to have an abortion? Of course, this is a very controversial issue, but... You know, kind of the more you think about this, the more pervasive this phenomenon of vagueness seems to be. And I guess it raises the question, are there any words that we use that aren't vague? Is it possible not to be vague? Can you ever speak completely precisely or are we always condemned to be vague? Well, I think you can. There are terms that can only be used precisely. For instance, a term like even, right? When is a natural number even? That seems to be very precise. Circle, at least as a mathematical term, it seems to be very precisely defined. But of course the problem, think of a circle for instance, um, once you start of using circle as things of the outside world, then it becomes very problematic because in the outside world there are simply no perfect circles. There you have vagueness as well, even for these mathematically very precise terms. So I think this is in general the case. If we have concept words that apply to the outside world, um, there will be vagueness. Another thing that sort of in everyday conversation we sort of lump together with vagueness is being ambiguous. Um, We usually think of those as two different ways of being unclear. But in the context of linguistics and philosophy, what's the difference between ambiguity and vagueness? Well, maybe you can give a very precise definition of what the difference is, but I think the difference is um, well known to everybody. So with ambiguity, we talk about two or more really distinct meanings that a term or a sentence can have. With vagueness, that's not so clear. So it's not the case that with tall, for instance, that the sentence can be used or the the word can be used in two completely different ways. No, that's not the case. Also, the difference with ambiguity, it is the case that although words can be ambiguous, for instance, bank, right, in English, it's ambiguous. It has two different meanings. But if you use that term in a sentence, it's normally completely clear what the speaker had in mind. With vagueness, that's typically not the case, or at least in particular contexts of use, it's not the case that vagueness disappears. So that's another difference with ambiguity. Right. So if I say, I'm going to meet my friend down by the bank today, I could either mean I'm going to meet them at the financial institution, or I'm going to meet them down in front of the river So there are like two different meanings that what I said could have. But it doesn't seem like when we use adjectives like tall or red, terms like that, that it's a matter of, well, there are two different meanings that it could have, and and we have to figure out which one the person intended. It seems like a different sort of thing. Yes, and I think that a speaker uses a vague term. He is not even sure himself what he exactly meant in terms of how bigger do you have to be in order to call somebody tall. Whereas in the case of a word that has like two different dictionary definitions, if I say I met my friend down by the bank, 
uh, it would be crazy to imagine that I didn't know what I meant. Whereas if I uh, say that my friend is tall, it is plausible to imagine that I don't have an exact limit that I draw in my mind to after so and so many millimeters, a person goes from being not tall to tall. So earlier on, you mentioned the principal paradox with which people who research vagueness are concerned, the Sorites paradox. How does that paradox go? Well, it's based on a number of taken to be uncontroversial assumptions. So for instance, that somebody who is two meters tall, right, we call tall. Somebody who's less than 160, we call short or not tall. So that's two premises. And then there's a further premise that, well, if somebody is tall and somebody else is, let's say, only one millimeter smaller, we still consider the second person tall as well. That's called the tolerance principle. The problem is that by using standard logic, if we start with the first person, we go one millimeter down, the second person will be tall as well by the tolerance principle. But then the third person, who is also one millimeter less tall, will be tall as well. And if you go on like that, by various arguments making use of modus ponens, we end up with a conclusion that also the shortest person, the one who was below 160, is tall as well. And then we reach the conclusion that, well, both everybody is tall, and in particular, the shortest person is both tall and not tall. And that, that's, of course, very problematic. So, you know, you start with Michael Jordan, start with some really tall person, and everybody would agree that if Michael Jordan were just one millimeter shorter, he would still be tall. But then, if you try to generalize that, and you say, well, whenever you subtract a millimeter from the height of somebody who is already tall, you get them still being tall. If we keep applying that principle over and over again, it seems like eventually at some point we're going to be committed to saying that a person who is one meter tall or something is still tall, in spite of the fact that before we started down this road, it seemed obvious that somebody who's only one meter tall would be short. And we've arrived at this conclusion that um, a person who is one meter tall is both tall and not tall. That seems like a bit of a problematic thing to think. So what should we say about this? Well... There are various ways to go, and actually they can be divided in two, I would say. So first, what you can do is to deny that one of the premises that we used in our reasoning is true. Or we can say, the reasoning we used was just not valid. To deny that one of the premises was true, we basically used two premises. The first premise was that, in your case, uh, Michael Jordan, he is tall, and the one who is one meters tall, that he is actually not tall, that is, short. That's what we can deny. Thus, we can deny that anybody is tall. Or maybe, more naturally, that we can't use the predicate tall appropriately when we imagine that there are this whole list of persons um, that, huh, if we take one millimeter off, then we have another person who's there. If we take one millimeter still off, there's another person there. So there is this whole sorry, a series of people. We might say that, well, in case we realize that there's this whole sorry, a series of people we can't use the predicate tall. That's one way to go. Another way to go, and that is to say, well, this tolerance principle, that is not true. So if you assume that somebody is tall and then one millimeter taller, he is still considered to be tall. Actually, that's what most people who work on the Sorites paradox, they actually do that. But it's kind of a strange move because it seems to be constitutive of what it means to be fake that, well, it's very small portions don't really matter. And giving up the tolerance principle, it has the conclusion that we have a very short cutoff point between what counts as tall and what counts as not tall. 
And that seems to be exactly not what is constitutive of vagueness. So I'm not really in favor of that kind of solution. Okay, but another kind of solution is to say, well, maybe the premises are true that we've used, but the kind of reasoning that we've used, that's not valid. What can we do there? Well, we can say, for instance, that we've made use basically of two kinds of reasoning patterns. So first was we use modus ponens, that is, if A is true, and if we say, if A, then B, if that's true, from these two, it follows that B is true. So Michael Jordan is tall. If Michael Jordan is tall, then somebody who is one millimeter smaller than Michael Jordan, he is tall as well. Oh, it follows from that that somebody who is one millimeter smaller than Michael Jordan, that he's tall. This reasoning pattern is called modus ponens, and you might want to uh, give up this principle. And actually, that's what some people have done. Another way to go, and that's actually the way that I would like to say, is that, well, all the particular arguments, so from Michael Jordan's tallness to somebody who is one millimeter smaller, to his tallness, that's valid. And the next step is valid, and the next step is valid. But those steps together, they can be added up to a new valid argument. So what I would like to say is that the consequence relation is actually not transitive. So the consequence relation doesn't add up. So what we have with the Sorites paradox is we have this chain of reasoning, you know, some premises and a conclusion, and the reasoning seems really good, but the conclusion is obviously unacceptable because it's contradictory. And we're looking at various ways of kind of wiggling out of that so that you don't get the contradictory conclusion anymore. So we've considered denying this fundamental principle of logic called modus ponens. Another solution that we've looked at is to say, uh, look, if you're looking at a row of people, it had to be a lot of people, but a huge row of people, starting with Michael Jordan, then going to somebody who is one millimeter shorter, then going to somebody who's one millimeter shorter than that person, all the way down to somebody who's one meter tall. If you're in that situation, you just don't get to use the term tall. We only can use the term tall if, like, for example, there was a big gap in that arrangement of people. So that's another approach to the paradox. And then the other one we were considering was, well, maybe there's something fishy about this idea that if Michael Jordan is tall, then somebody who is one millimeter shorter is also tall. Another influential approach has been to go into what's called three-valued logic, the guiding idea of which is that the things we say don't have to be either true or false. Some of the things we say can be neither true nor false. So how does that approach to the Sorites problem go? Well, first of all, I think that the three-valued logic, as you said, it says that some persons are neither tall nor not tall. But this approach has actually another consequence, uh, namely that the tolerance principle is not true, but actually also not false. Well, what is important in reasoning of the Sorites paradox is that it's not true, so it blocks the derivation of the shortest man being tall. In a sense, this is a very natural way to go, although it says that uh, the tolerance principle is not true. Uh, why it's natural is because, well, of the borderline tall man, it says that he's neither tall nor not tall. So what is interesting about this is that a classical tautology, right, that for any sentence A, it's either the case that A is the case or that not A is the case, is giving up. This approach, this three-valued approach, has the unwelcome consequence, maybe, that the tolerance principle is not true. But there's another way of actually interpreting the same three-valued logic in another way, such that the tolerance principle will become true. Uh, and this interpretation, borderline cases of tall man, are not, as the earlier approach said, neither tall nor uh, not tall, but rather 
borderline cases are both candidates tall and not tall, right? So if John is a borderline case of being a tall man, then we might say of him that the sentence John is tall and not tall is going to be true. Interesting about this kind of solution is that, well, the tolerance principle is going to be true, but it has also the consequence that a classical contradiction is counted as true. So this is very weird according to standard logicians. Why does this uh, still give rise to a solution to the paradox? Well, because this solution says that modus ponens, uh, one of the crucial inferences in this whole reasoning, is actually not valid. But that's also very controversial about it because modus ponens seems such a basic tool in reasoning that many people don't want to give up this reasoning. But both of these three-valued systems, in a sense, have given credit or more credit by experimental evidence. And why is that? Well, recently people have started to investigate what people actually say about borderline cases. And the interesting thing is that, so if John is a borderline case of a tall man, then John is tall or is not tall. Standard logician would say, this is a tautology, thus everybody should say that this is a true sentence. What you see in experiments is that actually many people would say, no, this is actually not a good sentence. This is a sentence you cannot say in that kind of situation. So the standard validity is not counted as being true. On the other hand, many people, the same kind of people who were asked in this experiment, would say of a borderline case of a tall man, that for this kind of person, John is tall and not tall, is actually okay to say. So, in this case, this sentence would be counted as true for these people. So, a classical contradiction is counted as being true, which is, of course, impossible for standard logic. Now, what is interesting about this solution that I prefer is actually that, well, um, it's a non-transitive solution, but it can be combined with a pragmatic story to say why many people reject standard tautologies, like John is tall or is not tall, in case John is a borderline case of a tall man, and accept standard contradictions. So John is tall and he's not tall. So this is a very interesting case because so far we've thought about two ways you could deny what's called the principle of the excluded middle in logic, and that's the idea that for any statement, that statement has to be either true or false. The one way of denying that is to say that some statements can be neither true nor false, and that leads to one kind of three-valued logic. And the other way of denying the principle of the excluded middle uh, leads to saying that some statements can actually be both true and false, and that leads to another kind of three-valued logic. One thing that's kind of funny about the second approach, well, first of all, it's certainly counterintuitive that a statement could be both true and false because that seems kind of contradictory. And in fact, this whole paradox, the Sorites paradox, seemed like a paradox in the first place because the conclusion was paradoxical. It was saying of somebody that they were both tall and not tall. So that's a funny thing about this solution is that it's kind of introducing more contradictions into the mix, as it were. I actually think that the Sorites paradox is not so much a paradox because it gives rise to a contradiction. I don't think that's a problem because experimental results show that for borderline cases, right, it's not a problem. But second, I think that the real problem, uh, the logical problem of the Sorites paradox is that it's predicted that if a single man is called to be tall, then everybody should be called tall. So the problem is not that we have a contradiction, or at least that's what I would say, but rather that for everybody there is a contradiction. So it's much stronger than just having one contradiction. Okay, right. 
When you first hear about this second kind of three-valued approach, sometimes referred to as the logic of paradox, when you first hear about that, you think, well, that's crazy. I mean, surely somebody can't be both tall and not tall. But then these studies that you're alluding to suggest that actually people do say that in some borderline cases. And if we decide to take what people sort of spontaneously say, unprompted, you know, with no prior theoretical commitments at face value, then yeah, that's kind of a psychedelic conclusion, isn't it? That we're that sometimes we believe and assert contradictory statements. I mean, uh, we seem to behave that way. So that's basically all I can say about it. So I don't think that uh, contradictions are maybe not as bad as uh, logicians want us to believe. So maybe we can get back to your preferred solution to the Soretti's paradox. And that is to deny that logical entailment is always transitive. So just to explain what that means, if a statement A implies statement B, you know, if it's impossible for statement A to be true and B false, and it's also impossible for statement B to be true and statement C to be false, so those two relations of logical entailment hold, you don't get to draw the further conclusion that it's impossible for statement A to be true and statement C to be false. Okay, and what's the point of saying this? Well, the point of saying this is that you kind of like sever the connection between all the intermediate steps from Michael Jordan to the really short person that allows you to infer that the really short person is somehow still tall. But hold on to the intuition that in each of those cases, taking a millimeter off of somebody's height does not suffice to no longer make them tall. Yes, exactly. So in a sense, it builds in, I think, a very natural assumption. And for me, the basic assumption about vagueness, and that is that, well, small differences, they don't really count. But small differences add up to big differences, and they do count. Right? And one way to build that in is to in the consequence relation. So I think this is very natural for vagueness, and what is maybe very surprising, at least it was very surprising to me, that uh, when we find out, some other colleagues, that the same kind of principle can be used to account for other so-called logical paradoxes as well. So it's not just restricted to vagueness, but it can be used for many other cases as well. We have to see how many cases, but it seems to be very um, productive. What is important about this notion is that, well... The standard way of thinking of the consequence relation is, well, if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true as well. And the notion of truth, there's just one level of truth that counts. What is crucial about this non-transitive notion of entailment is that, well, in a sense, we have two notions of truth, one stronger one and one weaker one. And the consequence relation says, if all the premises, so the things that we assume, are true in the stronger sense, then the conclusion should be at least true in this weaker sense. And that gives rise to the non-transitivity. I should say that this is just not giving up transitivity in general. No, of course, right? In most cases, transitivity is still going to be valid, only in very, very restricted cases, it's not going through. Now, you also mentioned that your account had some way of explaining why many people, when confronted with a borderline case, will say... This person is both tall and not tall, and they'll also deny the statement this person has to be either tall or not tall. So how do you get that result, given your explanation of the Sorites paradox? So I, I just mentioned that, in a sense, you make uh, use of two notions of truth, right? So a sentence can be true in a, in a strong sense, and it can also be true in a weaker sense. Now, somebody makes a statement, 
it's a general pragmatic way of interpreting what that person says to interpret it in the strongest possible way that the speaker could have meant it. Now this can be used for vagueness as well, right? Suppose that a sentence, it can be interpreted as, oh, the sentence is true in the strongest way, or it's only true in this weakest way. So the pragmatic interpretation principle says, try to interpret what a person says in the strongest possible way. Now, if you do this for the contradictory statement, so John is tall and he's not tall, then this sentence cannot be true in the strongest possible way, but it can be true in the weaker way. So that means this sentence is going to be interpreted in this weaker way, and that means that if you hear John is tall and he's not tall, that you interpret this as John is a borderline case. And that accounts for one part of this experiment. On the other hand, if you say John is either tall or not tall, and if you try to interpret that in the strongest possible way, you would interpret that as, well, John is either really tall or he's really not tall. If you apply that to a borderline case, you would say, oh, this sentence interpreted in the strongest way is false of this particular person. So that's the other result you get. And I think both results are very much in accordance with those experimental results. Taking a step back to the uh, phenomenon of vagueness and how pervasive it is, you might think it raises a problem for communication. You know, because when we use vague terms, we don't draw precise limits in our minds. You know, when I say that yesterday I wore a red hat, I don't have in mind the exact wavelength before which it's red and after which it's orange. And you might think that makes it mysterious how we could even communicate with each other. If I don't really have a clear idea of what I mean by red and you don't have a clear idea of what I mean by red, it seems possible that you might get the wrong idea of what I mean by red. So, I mean, is this a problem? Is there a mystery about how we can so much as communicate, given how vague our language is? It's true that in the early 20th century, many philosophers and many logicians uh, distrusted the natural language exactly because it's vague. And thus, natural language should be uh, reformed so that it's more precise and so that we can communicate in a better way. I don't think, and many uh, colleagues, right, they don't think that this is actually the case. It's based on a very idealistic assumption, namely that, so about what communication is. Namely that it is, I have a precise thought in mind that I want to communicate, and communication is only successful in case you grasp that exact same thought as well. But it seems that um, there is no uh, yes or no matter of successful communication, right? Communication can just be good enough for it to be successful. It doesn't have to be a one-to-one correspondence between what I think and what you come to think afterwards. So I think by lowering the limits of what communication is, and this is certainly the case of what good enough communication is, vagueness is not so big of a mystery anymore than uh, maybe we would think if we have this idealistic notion of successful communication in mind. I mean, is it ever useful to be vague? Is it ever better to be vague than to be precise? Would it ever be like unhelpful for me to be too precise? So first of all, I don't think that it's such a big problem not to be completely precise. Um, Can being vague also be helpful? Well, yes and no, I would say. So many people would have argued that actually being vague is good because it's flexible, right? So natural language is vague, that's good because it's flexible. But Flexibility by itself, I don't think, is a very good argument because you can actually prove, making use of a theory of rationality, that it's never advantageous 
not to be precise, that is to be vague. Well, it's never advantageous. That's based on uh, two assumptions, namely that we are ideal, rational reasoners. And second, that communication is always completely cooperative. But of course, those two assumptions that are problematic by itself. And as you already mentioned in your introduction, vagueness is used, for instance, by politicians a lot, right? Because, well, they speak to audiences and it's used in arguments a lot. Well, because typically in communication, it's not the case that speaker and hearer are completely cooperative. They don't have exactly the same goals in mind. And, well, in these cases, it might be very good not to be too precise and even, that is, to be vague. So non-cooperative circumstances gives you reason to be vague. But even in cooperative circumstances, vagueness is maybe the norm rather than uh, the exception. So how come that even there we see so much of vagueness? Well, I think that's just because, well, we are not the ideal reasoners that we are supposed to be in these standard theories of rationality. Well, first of all, we don't observe the world in as precise ways as well would be required to be always very precise. And second, our thoughts and our concepts are not very precise. So, as this to any uh, cognitive psychologist, he would say that, yes, our con- we don't have a very precise representation of our concepts. Concepts are themselves vague. So maybe it's very good for natural language to be vague, because actually our concepts are already vague, right? So concepts formation are based on whether something belongs to a concept or not. That's called the process of categorization. Categorization is a way of deciding And decisions are problematic, certainly if we have to do this under time pressure and so on. And this typically gives rise to inconsistencies in our behavior, in our, in our decision behavior, thus in our categorization behavior. So it's because of our limitations, so we're not very good in making a lot of decisions under time pressure. Vagueness is actually to be expected, so vagueness about our concepts. So one motivation for language being vague, or one reason for language to being vague, is that not only language is vague, but actually... Our concepts, our thoughts, ourselves are vague. So it's a natural consequence of that. So in many situations, it can be profitable to be vague. And this is typically the case if speaker and uh, hearer, if their preferences are not completely aligned. There are other reasons uh, to be vague. And that is has to do with you don't know exactly how the future will turn out. So in case you cannot really foresee what might happen, right? it might just uh, very good to state For instance, in a contract or in a law, the contract or a law in a very vague way that you don't have to foresee all possible circumstances that might arise and you want to make a decision about that. So in lawmaking, I think it's very important that there is vagueness for laws to be possible in the first place. Think, for instance, of the European laws. I think it's certainly the case that many European laws were only possible because our language is vague. Things can be stated in a vague way. If everything had to be very precise, there would be very few European laws, I bet. On the other hand, the fact that European laws are stated in a vague way is very dangerous as well, and that's exactly what we see now. Third, some people have argued that not only our thoughts are vague and language is vague, I think it's very hard to deny that, but even that it's good for language to be vague because actually the things in the world might be vague, right? So at first it seems like a crazy idea, but then think of a cloud, right? What is the beginning of the cloud and what is the end of the cloud, right? And the same, for instance, with a mountaintop like the Mont Blanc, right? Where does the Mont Blanc start? Where does it finish? 
still, right? So many people would say, oh, yeah, that's just about a representation of what we call the Mont Blanc. But then maybe it's not a completely weird thought of thinking that actually the Mont Blanc is uh, a vague object itself as well. And if so, then it might be another reason for why language is vague. Robert Von Roy, thank you for what was most definitely a case of a very stimulating interview. <laughs> If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, dot uchicago, dot edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. <laughs>